because I have it turned off. <laughs> so you didn't hear it. So let's, let's, can we do that again? Some of our adults, those silly young people. <laughs> you never know what to expect when they come back from camp. Just, uh, they may start out running around the auditorium. I don't, they do that at camp too. I don't know. So just, uh, just focus, focus. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask his blessings just before we look at Acts chapter 17, okay? Father, we thank you, Lord, for what our ears have already heard and what our hearts have already felt. And God, we thank you for the music that we have been able to bring to you, Lord, the praise through song. And now, Lord, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. We ask God that you just bless us as we look at your word. Lord, as we talk about uh, this text and how the early church literally turned the world upside down for you, help us, God, to figure out a better way to serve you, a way that we can turn our world upside down. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, through the prayer, you probably have already seen in your study sheet as well, the title of the message, Turning Our World Upside Down, comes right out of Acts chapter 17, along about verse 6. So we're going to get there, but let's begin with verse 1. So if you have your Bible, say, I'm there. Awesome. Verse number 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, and that's a reference to Paul and Silas, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now the story doesn't end there, and we'll read more of it in just a minute. But that's the phrase that I want you to focus in on me with for just a little while, okay? Uh, or uh, let's take a look, if you will. I'm going to give you five essentials to turning our world upside down. This, the timing of this message, of course, the Lord laid this on my heart. And as I began to look at this through our summer uh, sermons, there's really no series that we're in. But it appears as though a lot of the stuff the Lord's been laying on my heart is kind of revival related. As we look back over the summer so far and, and the messages that God has laid on us. And this was one of those as we look at this text. Sort of a revival type message. We think about our youth who have just come back from camp. And by the way, among our our, uh, our summer ministries, counting our daycare, our VBS, our kids camp, and then now youth camp, we've been blessed to have some 32 young people trust Christ this summer. This summer. What a blessing that is to see 32 young people having come to know the Lord. 
So what do we do about this? What did Paul do? So let's kind of pick it apart and look. Let's unpack the passage and take a look at what Paul did that led to this turning the world upside down is what they called it. That was the, uh, the reference made to them. Number one, you got to have a strategy. If you want to write that into your study sheet, you got to have a strategy. If you're going to turn the world upside down, you need to develop some habits that lead to turning the world upside down. Now the Bible said this, after they had gone through these cities, they came to Thessalonica, and then verse 2 says, then Paul as his custom was. If you look up that word custom in the Greek, it literally means as his habit was. When we think about habits, we often think about the wrong kind of things. Would you agree with me? Somebody says you have a habit uh, towards something. You have an addiction towards something. Did you know you can have good habits and positive addictions, right? There, there's nothing wrong with habitually, for instance, reading the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with having a habit of being in the Lord's house on Sunday and Wednesday. There's nothing wrong with having the habit or a custom of attending a Bible study hour. There's nothing wrong with having a habit of going to God at a particular time of the day and praying to him and lifting up people that you know need the touch of God on their lives. So, so you can have some positive habits. Not, not all habits are bad. Can I get an uh-huh? And the truth of the matter is the Bible says it was Paul's custom. It was his custom. Other places that we have read this and see this uh, concerning his custom. Verse 17 of the same chapter. Acts 17 verse 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. And in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So again, this is what he did on a daily basis. Uh, Acts chapter 18 verse number 19. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. I find this uh, uh, very interesting. As we see Paul, one of the things he would do is he would go into the synagogue. Now there were obviously enough Jewish believers for Thessalonica to have a synagogue. There was a minimum number they had to have. And so there they had one. And in the synagogue, they would read the scriptures and they would discuss what had been read. Isaiah is one of those passages that people enjoyed reading and, and discussing, and particularly those texts pertaining to the Messiah and the coming of Jesus. So the Bible tells us that Paul, now keep in mind, with all of his background when he was Saul, before he got saved, all of the knowledge that he had concerning the Old Testament and the prophecies, he was the perfect guy to sit in a, in a group with, in a small group, if you will, in the synagogue, and listen to his understanding of the scriptures. Not only did he have all that Old Testament stuff down, and he was a Pharisee and could re relate to all of those involved in Judaism, but God had redeemed him, converted him. He, he became a Christian, and he began to see things concerning all of those prophecies that others had not seen. And so here he sits in here as his custom was. Now you know we do uh, various things. We have habits that we go through. We, we prepare a strategy. Some of you are maybe still today working on your strategy uh, uh, pertaining to your education. 
You knew if you went to school and you got a certain degree and you paid the debt, uh, when it came to all of that, then you would be better off. So you have a strategy. Others develop strategies uh, concerning their finances. You know that if you save X amount of dollars and you put this over into this area and you work on becoming debt free, so you have financial strategies. Some of you are excellent fishermen. And you have a strategy. I remember, I don't know much about fishing. I'm going to tell you right away. I, I feed the fish usually. They take my bait. Uh, I, I'm not as gifted as many of you are. But I remember I went to the mountains of North Carolina and I was going to learn how to catch trout. I'd made up my mind. I was going to be there for some time. I was going to learn how to catch trout. And so I tried and tried. I went to the little bait shop there, Lester's Bait Shop in Bryson City, North Carolina. You know where that is, anybody? Lester became a very quick friend as I bought just about everything he had. <laughs> he told me, now if you're going to catch trout, you need this hook. I thought, that hook? What's the difference in one hook from another hook? But he showed me that was the trout hook. And if you're going to catch trout, you need this lure. You need this. You need to do this. And, and all through that area of, of the deep creek in Bryson City and the neighboring rivers, you will find my lures in the trees and you will find... <laughs> My special hooks under the rocks where I left them because I could not get them out. You'll find all that. And, and not a whole lot of trout to show for the investment either, I got to tell you. But, but I know people, they'll, they, they look for a certain fish. You go for a certain fish. You need certain things. Am I right? All you fishermen, say amen. Amen. You need certain things. You got to have the right bait. You got to know where to go. You got to know how deep to go. You got to know what time of year to. You got to think like the fish. I'm right, aren't I? You see, just because I can't fish don't mean I don't know anything about it. The truth of the the truth of the matter is that, that you got to have a strategy when it comes to it. And if you want to do it successfully, you have a strategy. It's an interesting thing. There are many things in our lives. Even some of you ladies, you know where the sales are on what days and you have strategies when it comes to shopping. You know when you can hit this store and you know how they, they got the circuit going and they can get all the sales in in a certain period of time. They know how to do all that. And so you can develop a strategy. Yet the most important thing in the world, truth be told, the most important thing in the world, our witnessing for Jesus Christ, many of us do not have a strategy. We think it's just going to happen. You don't believe that about all the other things in your life that are important. They don't just happen. You have a plan. You develop that plan. You work on that plan. You even practice. I have some friends who like to fly fish and they'll sit outside their house and they'll just cast constantly trying to hit certain targets. You say they practice. When it comes to winning people to Christ though, we think somehow we don't have to do any of that. It's just going to happen. Paul went into the synagogue as his custom was. He had a strategy. This is what I'm going to do. Some of us need to set goals in our life. We need to, we need to go about it this way. Every week we're going to witness so many times a week. Now be very careful with this because I've heard preachers say and I've heard people say and I've probably said it myself throughout the years that you should win so many people to Christ. Set a goal. You can't actually lead them to Christ in the sense of winning them but you can witness about Christ. The Holy Spirit has to do the actual call to salvation but you can present it. You can control the, the sharing of Christ. You cannot control the conversion. 
Right? So control what you can. That is, set your goals. Develop a strategy. I'm going to witness for Christ X number of times every week, every month. I'm going to do my best to lead someone if God is willing and calls them to Christ because of my efforts. And this is an important thing. We find the word reasoning in this text. I, I like this. This is part of his strategy. Verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them. Now the word reasoned in this text means to argue, to dispute. To add thought with thought, to mingle thoughts with thoughts. It's a type of apologetics that he's doing. It's not like the husband and wife who were arguing and got into the car on a drive headed to their vacation and they would not talk to each other for a long, long time. Finally, as they were driving along, the man noticed a field. And in that field, there were some mules and there were some pigs. And he couldn't resist it. He said sarcastically to his wife, uh, your relatives? <laughs> and she responded with, yes, they're my in-laws. <laughs> so uh, it's not that kind <laughs> It's not that kind of arguing we're talking about. Paul was saying, look, here's the way it is. This is the Christ. Now let me defend this statement. Let me show you why this is the Christ. Let's go back and look at these prophecies. Don't you see? This was all fulfilled in him. So he began to reason with them and argue the point from a viewpoint of apologetics. And then we have the term persuading. And that comes up. And that's an interesting statement. The Bible says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer. A little later on, we find that they were persuaded, verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. Now, there are many people that would like to argue that it is not up to you to do any persuading. And yet the Bible clearly says that Paul, it was his habit, he reasoned with and he persuaded some. Well, what does this word mean? Literally, the word means to incline one to believe by words. Now, I find that interesting. I know that you cannot win them, but there are some people who need answers to questions that they have, real-life questions, and real-life answers are available. And if you don't spend time reasoning with them, and you don't spend time attempting to persuade them, then they may not make a decision concerning Christ. Now, some may argue that, but you cannot defend the fact any other way. You can't explain any other way what Paul is doing in this text. He has a strategy, and his strategy includes reasoning and seeking to persuade. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about this somewhat, beginning in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul said, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So Paul said, listen, I understand the terror of God. I understand the, the wrath of God and the love of God. And my strategy is to reason with you so that you might be persuaded to trust Christ as your Savior. 
So let us understand today that part of our strategy involves explaining to people and arguing with people to the point of understanding that Christ is the Messiah. There is no other way to heaven except through him. Amen. And that's what Paul was explaining. When it comes to a strategy, there are many available. There's, uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, some years ago, Evangelism Explosion that came out and did such a great job of training and teaching. Not too many years back, a replacement to that was offered by the Southern Baptist Convention. It's a great program called Faith Evangelism Strategy. Now on the back of your study sheet today, you have that outline. I wanted to provide that with you. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and I think he said to me very simply this. You're going to talk about a strategy, but you're not going to offer them one that they can use and look at. So this is simply a tool. That's all it is. It begins with a key question that you can ask any individual at any time. It's a non-confrontational kind of question. And the question simply is this. In your personal opinion, what does it take for a person to go to heaven? Now, most people are like I am. We tend to think highly of our own opinion. <laughs> Would you agree? And they're willing to give you their opinion. But you'd be surprised. I've done it numerous times. You'd be surprised how many people will look at you and say, I really don't know the answer to that. And it gives you the chance to say back to them, you know, we answer that with one word. The word's faith. F-A-I-T-H. And you begin to explain to them what those letters mean. And you have them all right there for you to uh, memorize and look at. F is for forgiveness and, and A is for available. It's not automatic. Uh, I is for impossible. It's impossible for a holy God to allow sinners into heaven. T is for turning. We also use the word repent. H is for heaven. And then after you've explained all of that, you have an opportunity to invite them to ask Jesus to be their savior. You say, faith evangelism strategy, pastor, do you believe that's the only way? No, it's not, but it's a very good tool and you can utilize it. Maybe you're, maybe you're uh, uh, using something even more simple than that, the simple Romans road to salvation. You know, the truth of the matter is, if you'll just try to win somebody, God's going to bless and you'll see souls saved. I believe that. I believe that. You say, well, I don't know about that. I'm just waiting on him. Do you apply that in other areas? Do you leave here today saying, I know when I get in my car, I'm going to have fish in the cooler. Because if God wants me to have fish, he'll just put them in my trunk in the cooler. I don't have to go fishing. Do you really believe that's the way it works? How do you define what Paul did? How do you define this text of reasoning and persuading? How do you do that unless you first develop a strategy? Number two, you got to have an essential, the scripture, the scriptures. The Bible says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, verse 2. We're not talking about human reasoning because human reasoning will not do it. We're not talking about the wisdom of man because the Bible tells us that the wisdom of man is foolishness with God. So let us not mistake what we're being told. It's the scripture, the word of God that we have to use. Something that Paul told young Timothy, study to show yourself approved. We should learn the scriptures. Hey, if you're going to share the scripture, you got to first know the scripture. Amen. Am I right? Yes. I've said to some of our fellows in the church many times, I want to go fishing with you. Because if I, if I go with them, I'm going to learn because they know how to do it. There's a couple of you I want to go golfing with because I'll mess up your golf game for sure, but I'll learn from you. The point is this, if you, if you want to do something and do it well, you got to be familiar with it. you got to know it. And the point is, listen, if you're going to share the scripture, then know the scripture. 
Now, I believe this, and I want to say this to you just so you'll understand. Some people here today, and I believe this, probably a large majority of us, we would probably say, truth be known, you know, pastor, I would like to share more about Jesus, but I'm afraid I'm going to get asked a question I don't know the answer to. And because I don't know the scripture that well yet, I don't share what I do know. And let me tell you something. Here's what you need to do. I want you to repeat it with me. Are you ready? This is your answer. Just re repeat after me. I do not know. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know. But I can find out. I'll ask. I'll send my ABF teacher an email. I'll send my pastor an email. I'll talk to somebody. I'll write it down. I'll ask. If you got the question, I'll ask, I'll ask somebody that, that, that knows the answer. I'll find the answer for you. So don't be afraid to stop and say to somebody, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm new at this, but I know what Jesus did for me. And I know he can do that for you. That I know. The woman at the well didn't know the scripture. The woman at the well left her water pot and ran back to the city and said, Come, meet a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? Hey, I don't have the answer, but let me bring you to my church. They'll talk about Jesus there and they'll show you. Let me bring you to somebody I know. Let me set up a meeting with you and have somebody come by. They have the answer. So don't, don't let that somehow stop you. Why the scripture, you say? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we need to share the word. We need to reason from the word. Argue from the word. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what God says. We can count on that. It's alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing uh, of, the, of the soul uh, and the marrow. And it's, it is an, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So how do I go about learning the word of God? Let me give you something very practical. Maybe you're here today. You say, preacher, I don't understand the word. I try to read it, but I can't comprehend it very well. Well, first of all, you need to answer this question. Have you, have you been born again? Because if you are born again, you have within you a personal tutor. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's the one that has the, the, uh, uh, the responsibility and the ability to turn the light on of the scriptures for you. It's called illumination. He illuminates what is already there. Some people call it revelation. That is not true, by the way. He doesn't reveal to you. It's already there. He doesn't disclose it. It's already been disclosed. He simply turns the light on for what is already there. So he illuminates the scripture for you. So number one, are you saved? Number two, another question you need to ask is, do you pray before you read? Yeah, right. Ask God to help you. Say, Lord, I, I need... Now, let's go back to a strategy for just a minute because I think this is important. Where do I start? Maybe you're a new believer. I don't suggest that you start over in the book of Genesis. <laughs> I don't suggest that because for too long you're going to come to Leviticus and you're going to quit. <laughs> Amen? So I don't suggest that. I'll tell you where you ought to start. You ought to start in the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John. And then don't just go from there reading through. Go skip all the way back and read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So read those books, okay? The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then read the book of Romans. Then read all of the New Testament. 
You say, but what about the Old Testament? Well, uh, when you go to get married, do you learn all about your spouse or all about her family first? All about his family first. Learn all about your spouse. Learn all about Jesus you can learn. Then go look at the family, how he came about, what all of that was about back there in Genesis, then read the Bible through. So you start in the new and then go back over to the old. So develop your, your strategy of knowing the scriptures. You ought to be involved. I say this a lot in today's world and I'm afraid it, it doesn't always land on ears that receive it well. But you ought to be involved in Bible studies. You ought to be involved in Sunday school. We call it ABF. Doesn't matter what you call it. It's a time to gather together and learn the word of God. And I'll guarantee you, you'll learn something if you show up for it. You're going to learn something you didn't know beforehand. So when you go through this week, you will know more about the scripture than you knew last week. If you'll put yourself in that environment. The word of God. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9. I'll read a, a passage of this to you if you'll follow along with me. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. <clears throat> I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches. Now notice this verse, verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The psalmist said, I'm going to meditate. You know what meditation in the Old Testament, when you read that verse of Scripture, you know what that means? It doesn't mean when you said, I'm thankful for this because I've got knee trouble from basketball and soccer and I can't do that little meditation stance that some of you guys can do. Uh, whatever that is, where you fold your legs over uh, like the old toy Gumby and, and you, uh, you do all that. You, only some of the church knows what I'm talking about. So uh, that's all right. So you can't, can't do that. But, but I, I, what, what the Bible is saying is to meditate on is to ponder and to speak it out loud. So you take the scripture and you say it out loud. Let it roll off your, your mouth. Let it roll off your lips and, and, and come out of your mouth. And, and you think about what it's saying and you, and you ponder it. And you say, you know, this is what God is saying. What does this mean? And you take it, you spend time on it to meditate, to meditate on the things of God. One of my favorite verses of scripture, and I'm going to share this with you because of several things. One, the content of it. But it also comes from the church of Thessalonica, and that is who Paul is talking with, the people of Thessalonica. So in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13, this is Paul's testimony of these people. And this is what he says. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when... You received the word of God, which you heard from us. You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now there, there will always be some who sit in a congregation like this 
and they'll listen to a portion of a message or they'll, they'll listen online and they'll say something like, well, you know, I, that, that preacher, I just cannot agree with what he's saying because I, that's just a man. He's just, and you're absolutely right, I'm just a man. But when it comes to the word of God, understand it is to be received as the word of God, which it is, and not the word of man. The word of God. The scriptures. Jesus said this concerning his own testimony. He said there were three things that bore witness to who he was. And beginning in John chapter 5 and verse 36, it reads this way. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me. So that's the first testimony. The works that he did. The miracles that he did. That the Father has sent me, he said. And the Father himself, who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Jesus said this, look, my, my works should tell you who I am. My Father who is in heaven, he would reveal it to you. If you were in a relationship with him, he would tell you who I am. He'll testify. The word of God, which you say you search all the time, it testifies of me. It tells you who I am is what Jesus said. The word of God. The word of God. Then the third thing on the list you got to have, and I think this verse of scripture leads us directly into this, is the Savior. Got to have a strategy, got to have scripture, and you got to have the Savior. We need to just exalt Jesus. I, I love this. I, you know, so many times we are baited into arguments. So many times as you begin, maybe you begin your witness and someone wants to get you off on politics and someone wants to get you off on the end of the world and someone wants to get you off on all of these other things. Can you define for me this? And can you tell me why this happens? And, and they have all of these questions that they've been working on and using for years that somehow will baffle you and silence you if you try to deal with them. But the truth of the matter is Paul doesn't deal with any of those questions. He keeps coming back to the person of Jesus. He has all of these people in this synagogue that he's talking to. And he opens the scripture and he reasons with them. And he's seeking to persuade them. And the Bible says that this was his, his argument. Uh, verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. So he says, look, I, I want to show you how this one who died and rose from the dead, is the Christ. Demonstrating and explaining. That word demonstrating is an interesting word. It literally refers to laying food out on the table that is made available to everyone. That's the term that's used. You know what Paul was saying? This Christ, the one who died, he died for you. This Christ, the one who died, he rose from the dead. Now we know that's the gospel, am I right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul spends time on the gospel. And here's what he does with it. He lays it out in front of them as if to say, it's for you. It's for every individual who wants Christ. He's available. And the term used means just that. 
And so here we have the argument of who Jesus is, not who anybody else is. Not, he's not defending who he is. He doesn't even go into that. But the Christ, he says, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that all of the prophecies have been about. Where he was born, how he entered Jerusalem, what he has done. He has come to redeem the world. He's come to offer forgiveness of sin. He is the Lamb of God that was slain. The one who was depicted in the Passover meal that you've been practicing all of your life, he would say to these people. The truth is, it's all about who Jesus is. What you believe about Jesus makes all the difference in the world. Now, there are some people who don't want to talk to you about Jesus. Am I right? Don't talk about him. Don't talk about him. They'll talk about anything else but not Jesus. Let's not go there. Yet Jesus is the very one you need to talk about. I, uh, I think I've shared this with you before, but I was pastoring in Texas outside Dallas, a little town called Arlington, home of the Cowboys and the Rangers. All right, it's all right, it's all right, it's okay. It's all right. Who? <laughs> Woo! Texas Rangers, man, that should have got an amen. I know the Cowboys. Had, no, all right, anyway, we'll go on. I was pastoring out there, and I had a man that came into a church service, and he had on a, um, one of those, was it a yarmulke? Is that what you call it? Had on a yarmulke, and he sat down with his wife, and, and uh, got up and left right at the beginning of the invitation. And, and the next week, he came in again. And that week, it was just one of those weeks where I just felt the message that God had laid on my heart was just, I mean, it was as pure gospel as they come, all about Jesus, so, so very focused. And I wanted to speak to them. So after the service was over, I looked for them and couldn't find them. And one of my deacons came to me and he handed me a little piece of paper. And it was a little note. It had come from him. He said, he, he gave me this note to give to you, Pastor. So I opened it up. And, and it said something like, and I won't get it word for word, but this is the gist of what he said. Pastor, you should be more tolerant of people who don't agree with you about Jesus. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. There's, there's no wiggle room when it comes to who Jesus is. You either believe he's the son of God or you don't. You either believe he's the Messiah or you don't. You're either headed to heaven or you're headed to hell. That's one or the other. There is no other way. No other way. Now you can argue a whole lot of stuff, but you can't argue about who Jesus is. That's non-negotiable. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by him. But by him. So Paul focused in on who Jesus is. I love the story recorded in the book of Acts earlier than where we started in Acts chapter 17 of the Ethiopian eunuch. You might remember, we just had a missionary, by the way, Wednesday night. If you missed Wednesday night, you missed a blessing. They are missionaries in Ethiopia. And uh, there is a, a text in Psalms, there's a verse of scripture in Psalm that talks about Ethiopia will, will stretch out its arms toward God. And many believe that Ethiopia did indeed go through a, uh, a notable awakening and revival period. Today, they are in need of the gospel. But many years ago, they reached out to God. Many believe the reason they did 
was because of the eunuch that was won to Christ by one by the name of Philip in this text. God took Philip from a great revival in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and he told him, I want you to go down to the desert, go down to the south. And when he got there, he saw a chariot and, and the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God led him. It's important that we follow the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God led him to join himself to that chariot, to go over. And I'll pick up reading in verse number 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near, overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? Now let me pause a moment. Remember the strategy? Let me reason with you. Let me persuade you. Let me tell you. Let me use the scripture. Remember the scripture? Now how about the Savior? Let's talk about the Savior. And so, so Philip now, uh, the Bible says, that the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guide me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And, and who he will declare or who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Who, who is this talking about? This passage in Isaiah, who is it referring to? Then Philip, verse 35, opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Jesus. Share Jesus. Number four on the list of essentials that we need are struggles. Now this one's going to be hard for us to, to fully grasp, no doubt, because some of us do our best to avoid those. Can I get an amen? I don't, I don't think there's anything unwise about that. We don't like struggles. I don't particularly care for them. I pray for God's favor on us and favor on you and favor on my family. Uh, yet the Bible tells us sometimes you're going to encounter difficulties. You're going to go through affliction. And God can use that difficulty and use those uh, uh, afflicting times for his honor and his glory. So we read in our text, uh, Acts chapter 17, that they drug this guy named Jason out. And the Bible says, uh, I'll pick up again in verse number 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. Now, I love this text. Let me keep reading for the sake of, of uh, referring back to it in a moment. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, keep that verse in mind. We'll refer back to that in a minute. So let's talk about struggles for just a minute. Let's talk about the fact that not everybody in this whole world is going to re be receptive to what you have to share concerning Jesus. Am I right? If you don't agree with that, you haven't done much sharing. I'll tell you that. Because we have a world that is not necessarily embracing of the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, beginning in verse number 17, Jesus had these words to say to his disciples. These things I command you that you love one another. 
If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now our persecution, particularly in the United States, is not as bad as some places. The State Department actually has uh, researched and found that there are at least 60 countries in our world in which it is considered a crime to say you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And persecution comes as a result of it in at least 60 countries in our world. Open Door Ministries records that a thousand Christians each month either are killed for their faith or they are recipients of horrible acts of violence because they name the name of Jesus. Less than two years ago, in August of 2015, outside the city of Aleppo, Syria, 11 missionaries were killed by ISIS rebels for no other reason than they were Christians. Their bodies were taken and crucified. First they were brutalized, then they were crucified. Their bodies were left on the crosses for two days and they, it was forbade that anyone could take them down. One of them was a 12-year-old boy. Two months from his 13th birthday. Refused to refuse Jesus. Given the opportunity to, and refused it. More recent, this is the month of July. On July 3rd, this year, as we were preparing all of our firecrackers or earplugs for neighbors' firecrackers, on July 3rd, a pastor in Iran by the name of Amin Nadira, he was a Muslim who left the Muslim faith and trusted in Jesus as his Savior and started house churches. He was sentenced to a 15-year prison sentence. Ten of those years for causing a national security problem as far as having house churches. And five years saying that he had blasphemed because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. A 15-year sentence. Here we sit. We have all the freedom in the world to say we believe in Jesus. All the freedom in the world to share Jesus. And we worry about somebody looking at us funny. Can I get an uh-huh? There will be struggles. There will be difficulties. They dragged Jason out. Aren't you thankful? I love this story because the Bible says he wasn't one of the preachers, by the way. He harbored them. That is, he supported the ministry. Now listen carefully because if you're a supporter of the ministry of Christ, you too are going to be attacked. There's no question about that. You don't have to be the one that's doing the preaching from the mountaintop like Paul and Silas were. You can just be the one who's supporting. 
who's there to help. And thank God for those who support and those who are there to help. It is a ministry indeed. So there will be struggles. Jesus said, the world hated me, they're going to hate you. So I ask you, what part of the word hate don't you understand? Last of all, number five, the fifth essential is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Now the Bible says they took security of Jason and then let him go. That word security is an interesting word. In the Greek it is the word hekanos. It means ample amount of money, possessions, or goods. That is, they took from him the things that they might have thought were valuable to him, and by taking them from him, they could then influence his life to somehow not be a follower of Jesus and to stop, hear me, helping turn the world upside down. Many times we think it's fantastic to serve the Lord and worship the Lord just as long as it really doesn't cost us very much. Sacrifice. You want to turn the world upside down? It's going to cost you. You want to turn Jacksonville upside down? It's going to cost us. You want to turn your neighborhood around for Christ? It's going to cost you. You want to turn uh, this thing, uh, this, this whole uh, movement that's going on in our country and even in our world, you want to make an impact, you're going to do it not without some form of sacrifice and cost. David the psalmist, and many of you are familiar with this text in 2 Samuel chapter 24, when he was offered the threshing floor, what became the place for the temple that he would build, he wanted to offer a sacrifice and Aruna, who owned it, said, why don't you just take it since you're going to offer it to God and here are some animals that you can sacrifice, just take them. I, I don't want any money from you, just take them. And David refused. He said, no, I'm going to buy it from you. And the text reads this way, then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Jesus, when he talked about this in Luke chapter 14, he mentioned it, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to stop and count the cost. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, and I'll close with this text. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus was saying was, if your love for your family is not in comparison as though it is hate toward your love for me. He's not talking about hating them because that would be contrary to other scriptures he has said. What he's saying is your love for me needs to be so great that even in comparison your greatest love on earth cannot compare. Then in verse 27 he said, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
I say this to our young people who have just returned from camp and I say this to our adults who the Holy Spirit is leading in a revival type spirit. I say this to all of us that we might pay attention to. Anybody can start a race. Every one of us can line up and look like we're going to run this race and we're going to run it well, but the end matters. The finishing matters. So I ask you to consider the cost. You'll not serve him without some sacrifice. Maybe there are some friends you've got to give up. Maybe there are some things that you do you've got, you got to get rid of. For testimony's sake. Maybe there's a change in your life that has to occur. Maybe some things that are familiar need to be set aside. And you need to change some things. You need to develop some habits that are good habits. You need to develop a strategy of winning people to Christ. You need to look and study the scriptures. You need to stop and focus on Jesus. And make sure he is the primary focus. That he has the preeminence. Not only in your testimony but in your life. And so I ask you are you willing to go through those struggles? You'll not go through them alone, you know. And are you willing to pay the price to turn the world, our world, upside down for Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful testimony and how Paul worked in this setting of Acts chapter 17 and how your Holy Spirit appears throughout the text, Lord, that we've studied today and you're leading and you're guiding. And today we come to you, Lord, and we ask you just to speak to our hearts. Lord, perhaps today we need to commit to you to win or to lead, to at least witness to people every week Every day, perhaps, let us study the scriptures and prepare those good habits. Every morning, we'll spend time with you. Every morning, we'll spend time in your word. Every morning, we'll bow before you in prayer. And Father, we ask that you teach us your word. Continue to help us to grow in you. Lord, if there's a person here today that doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray today they'd realize that the same Christ Paul spoke of is available, God. As Paul laid him out on a table for all to take, so you have done with us today. And anybody that wants forgiveness of sin can have it. Anybody that wants to receive Christ as their Savior can do so. We thank you in Jesus' name. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, the invitation is open. If you would come and pray for your city, if you will come and pray for your school, if you will come and pray for your neighborhood, pray for your family. If you're here today without Christ and you have a need, you'd like to talk to somebody about trusting Christ, about being born again, we'd love the opportunity to talk with you. You'd have to let us know when you come now. Pastor, I want to talk to somebody about trusting Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to leave you alone, let you just pray and return back to your seat. Would you stand with me, please, all who are able, while we're praying, God bless you. As you follow his lead, God bless you.